Well, last night we kind of took off without our seatbelts on. And uh, it was good, I agree. It was a good ride. You know, that's what they say in the special operations community. We're up for a ride when they're going into battle. Um, so I forgot to show you some of the items that could interest you on the table. Jason is sitting in the front row right now, but uh, because you know there's the potluck at the back end, and because I did a very poor job of promoting merchandise all weekend, um, if you should feel led to get up and want to buy while I'm speaking this morning, you can still hear me. Um, it might make the line easier to manage at the back end. Um, Jason picked a couple things out and then I picked some other things out. I'll just wave them at you quickly. We have a whole series of these cards. They look like a credit card. Um, and each one, there were 24 different series. And each one has a different subject matter. This one happens to be basic deliverance. And so it has our basic deliverance series on it and then four messages on authority. That's because authority is necessary to function in deliverance. And if you don't know your authority, you will fail in deliverance. It's that simple. Um, so I like to say it's the nuclear fuel that powers the aircraft carrier. But however you say it, that's why authority is important. Uh, this is what this one is. All of them are similar in this respect. They have a cellophane wrapper on them, which can be a little bit hinky to unwrap. But there you go. I just opened that one. And then you can slide it out. And there's a tab that you can't really see from the front. It's more prominent from the back. But anyway, you just push it out like that. And now you can all see it. And you can plug this into the USB port on your computer. And from there, you can load all this content to your phone or your tablet or play it on your computer directly, whatever you want to do. Uh, but anyway, so this one's on deliverance. This one that I brought up is on spiritual warfare. So different uh, face to it, and that's because it has different content. This one has more on the authority of uh, a believer. Jesus wins, how deliverance ministry hastens the return of Christ. Topics in advanced deliverance, how to minister to Freemasonry. Uh, and curse breaking, which of course is eminently suitable for children at bedtime. Um, here it is in CD form, curse breaking, so that might interest you. This is a dedicated message on Christian authority and deliverance. We have other messages on authority, but this one's specific to deliverance. Um, here is the basic deliverance series. I brought half a dozen or so of these. I will say this, based on some personal one-to-one -one interaction I had with some of you, a lot of you need to listen to this because you don't really get the mechanics of deliverance based on the questions that you've asked. So this will help straighten out a lot of those basic questions that uh, need to get wrestled to ground, like um, whether self-deliverance is even a thing. So Yuri and I had a little bit of a, I don't know what you want to call it, a comedy review up here. Uh, where Yuri said he got delivered of something, and I said, yeah, it's more in the realm of sovereign deliverance when God just comes on you and does it. And every now and then that happens. I wouldn't deny it. But it, self-deliverance is nowhere taught in Scripture. Absolutely nowhere is it taught in Scripture. So if you try it and it works, you got lucky, but don't count it as your go-to method, right? There's, a, there's an old saying in the dealmaker community that I came out of. There's a saying in the golf-playing community. Some of you might relate to that better. Are you lucky or good, right? People who are good can deliver on demand. People who are lucky, they get lucky. And when it works, it's great, but it's not replicable. So self-deliverance, if it worked for you, you got lucky. That doesn't mean you're good. Make sense? All right, let's keep going. Um, healing is the children's bread. This is on that famous passage where Jesus says that to the Syrophoenician woman. But it's an exploration of how it's our birthright to get healing. This one's on the power of God. You've seen the son. That's really good English. You've seen the power of God um, moving in the two evening services we've held up here. Um, the first night for a lot of deliverance type stuff. Last night more for impartation. Uh, but power is essential to seeing these things of the spirit work, uh, particularly in the realm of deliverance and in healing. And so if you don't understand what spiritual power is, you don't understand where it's discussed in the Bible, you don't understand most particularly how to keep yourself in a place where you can be a vessel of power so that God can use you, uh, that would be an interesting series for you. 
Um, Jason and I both agreed that we should show you Grace, Law, and Freedom. He gave me the CD version. I picked the DVD version, but they have the same cover. Um, this is a, a college-level course on how to get people free of sexual bondage. And it doesn't much matter which version of it it might be. It could be pornography, which applies these days equally to men and women. Uh, it could be homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, whatever. Jesus sets people free of it. We see it routinely. Um, in my message last night, I mentioned a mass freeing of people in New York City. I'm waiting for the call from the New York Times. It hasn't come yet, but I'm expecting it will. They, they always get wind of stuff that I do in New York, and they always want to talk to me. And so far, they haven't had the boldness to publish anything recently, but they did a little while back. Anyway, so we did a volume one of that, and then we did a volume two. Uh, this one was more challenging to do. That first volume I did, I taught it in Australia. Um, then I wanted to teach this in the United States, and what I found is that most churches are not willing to host these kinds of conferences because they're afraid of demonstrations, they're afraid of a news truck in front of the church, uh, they're afraid of vandalism, threats against their congregation, lawsuits, etc. So most churches, this is too hot to handle. So I don't do very many conferences on this. So you're most likely, well maybe Yuri will want to do it someday, I don't know. But, but anyway, your most likely place to hear this is on these recordings because I, again, I don't get many invitations, it's too hot to handle. And then we have these two, these are volumes one and two, the white one is volume two. Um, this is on healing mental illness, and we see a lot of people get healed. Bipolar, um, schizophrenia, psychosis, um, depression, anxiety, many things like this, and these two series on mental illness, I teach uh, generally with a woman who is married to a guy who works for me. And uh, he was a surgeon making more than a million dollars a year and he quit his job to come do this. And I told him he should stay as a surgeon and he didn't listen. He said Jesus told him to come do this. So he's out of the surgery business. Um, she is a psychiatrist. They both live in New York City. She's emptied out her practice a couple of times using the stuff that she learned in my events and so now psychiatrists and psychologists from all over the Northeast reach out to her and they say, what is it you're doing that's working? Because, you know, the kind of rule of thumb in the mental health community is a third get better, a third get worse, and a third stay the same. And she's having like a 90% success rate of healings and then about 10% that they're still working through it. Uh, so they're asking, what is it that you're doing differently? They don't necessarily like what they hear when she tells them I'm using God's power but they can't deny the results. And so anyway, the stuff that we teach is found in those teachings that might interest you as well. Um, there we go. Thanks, Jason. So like I say, if you feel led to go shopping, you could do that while we're doing the message. Um, I think we had a couple videos we didn't show last night either, so if you want to put up the slides first, uh, then we'll show the videos and then I'll get going. Uh-oh, maybe we've got a problem. Are we okay? Ixnay on the Ides sleigh. Okay. We will proceed. I'll tell you what they say. Uh, it's better to have the graphic. We're available on all social media platforms if you want to get involved with us. Um, the handle we use is uh, at Orbis Ministries C-A-U-S-A because I live in California, that's the CA, and I live in the United States, that's the USA. Um, so if you want to follow us anywhere, Rumble, Twitter, Parler, Facebook, TikTok, I don't care, whatever, we're there, you can find us. Um, the other thing, oh, oh, do we now have it up? There we go, see, there we are, all of those social media platforms. There's a story behind that long handle, but I'll skip it, that's where you find us. So next slide. Um, we have an app. It's free. You can point your phone at that QR code and load it to your, uh, to your phone. Um, we have kind of a chat feature in there. We put conferences on there. We have some free content there. Um, so it's, uh, it's become a, a major means of communication for us. And so you might want to get the Orbis Ministries app again, no cost at all. Next slide.
Um, this is for the school, different QR code. So we have an online training school. I suppose some of our content would approximate what you've got in FISH, uh, but you know each school kind of has its own thing. But if you're interested in checking that out, you can go to orbissm.com or you can just use the QR code and uh, you can see the courses we have available. Uh, we enroll new courses kind of on an ongoing basis with two new courses a year. We're about to launch, we haven't done it yet, but we're about to launch a degreed program. You can get a legitimate bachelor's degree in supernatural ministry um, through that if you have a desire to do so. You don't need to get the degree, it's optional. You can just take the institute level if you prefer. Uh, anyway, so that's that on that. And we have our prayer network that you can go to orbisprayer.org. Um, this is an online prayer room, and we're having a lot of success with that. The people who are staffing the prayer room are graduates of our school, and we're seeing healings and deliverances and so forth. Um, this is not the kind of place that you call into so somebody will agree with you in prayer for the salvation of your husband or whatever. It's not that. This is like, I need help, and I don't know anywhere to go to get it, or I've tried everything local, and it's not working, so I need something more. Again, no charge whatsoever for our prayer room. If you want to make a donation, of course, we'll always take it, but there's no requirement to pay. And so, um, anyway, we're booking about uh, 40 to 50 appointments a week, and it's going up. And so we're staying pretty busy, and um, our graduates are happy that they're getting hands-on practical training as well. And again, they've all been trained through um, our methodologies and whatnot. Okay, uh, I think we should have a video or two. Hi, I'm Ken Fish. I'm going to be your host in the class Prophesy with the Prophets 101. In this class, we're going to cover a variety of baseline issues, including scripture and the simple gift of prophecy. How do they interact with each other? Which one's more important, and how do we judge them? We're also going to cover the purpose and function of prophecy, the words of God and the words of men. We're going to talk about biblical guidelines of administration within the prophetic realm and how to receive revelation so that even if you've never received a word from God, by the end of the class, you should be starting to get these words from God for yourself. We'll also talk about how these things grow and develop moving from the simple gift of prophecy to a ministry of prophecy and ultimately into the office of prophet. You're going to love this class, so join me on the journey and learn how to prophesy with the prophets. And that's available through our school at orbissm.com. And I think we have one other one maybe on He Restores My Soul. Is that right? Ruminates our production company. Inner healing deals with the soul principally memories and emotions. We are integrated beings created by God in such a way that what goes on inside of us can affect what is visible to the outside. Inner healing can also give us hope for the future because we are no longer chained to the past, because we are freed from memories that have haunted us, because we are freed from emotions that have controlled us, we can find a place of wholeness and balance in the world. Hi, I'm Ken Fish. I'm inviting you to go on this journey of inner healing with me in my course, He Restores My Soul 101. In this course, you will learn the basic foundations of inner healing. We will look at biblical case studies. We will also look at the difference between inner healing and what is today known as sozo. The spiritual and healing importance of forgiveness will be covered and how to minister forgiveness to those who are in need of it. We will also explore what hinders breakthrough and prayer solutions to those who are blocked. I'm excited to go on this journey with you. All right, so we finally got through the commercial announcements. Now let's get to the important stuff. Um, if you have Bibles this morning, um, you can open them to Exodus chapter 15. And if you happen to be using an electronic Bible like much of America is doing these days, please take this moment to silence your phones, all of them, or that includes your tablets, so that they don't chirp, beep, or otherwise make noise in the middle of the sermon. Uh, you can leave them on vibrate if you're expecting an important message or if the child care should need to contact you. Uh, but please make sure they're in silent mode. Inevitably, somebody won't do that. They'll say, I'm good. And then the thing will go off in the middle of the service. So I'll tell you right now, if, you, if that happens, we are going to mock you publicly and shame you mercilessly. 
in the name of the Lord. <laughs> of course, that's right. All right. Um, we're in Exodus chapter 15. And the backstory to this passage, since all scripture has a context, is that Moses has been sent as the deliverer of the children of Israel to Pharaoh. They've already had the ten plagues. They've exited Pharaoh's uh, control. They've crossed the Red Sea. The army of Egypt has been destroyed. And Miriam and Moses have just finished singing the song about the horse and the rider being thrown into the sea. And so they've come out of all of that and they are now moving, um, starting to move through the desert. And it says in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water when they came to Marah, they could not find water, uh, drink the water of Marah, because it was bitter, therefore it was named Marah. Now, if you didn't catch it, there's something going on here, right? When, when you see a word three times in one verse, God is like, yip, yip, yip. he's trying to highlight it and get your attention, right? Even the Bible says elsewhere in the New Testament, in the mouth of two or more witnesses shall every matter be established. So you better pay attention when you see it. You may not know what Marah is, but you will before this message is over. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, which could also be translated a tree, but the point is it's a big chunk of wood that's long and semi-cylindrical or anyway. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet, which is to say it's potable now, which is kind of weird, right? I mean, throw a log into the water, and what was no, not drinkable and poisonous is suddenly okay. But this is the nature of miracles, so this is just another miracle. Ho-hum, just another day of miracles. And there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Now, I mentioned this on the first night, and we'll come back to this. this is why we're closing with this message, but just let that rest on you for a second. He wants to be the Lord your healer. And then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Well, that's it. That's the story that we're looking at today. And I'll just start out with this observation that as in any relationship, um, the Lord reveals himself progressively. I have one friend that I'm still you know, close with. I went to college with him, which means we've known each other a long time. I won't say how long, but a long time. And, uh, and I know him better today than I did when we first moved in together as roommates in college. Or my wife. I, don't, I haven't known my wife as long as I've known the friend I just named. But um, we're nearly in December, so in December next month, we will celebrate our 35th wedding anniversary. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> um, I know her better now than I did when I first married her. I know things that she likes and doesn't like. Sometimes we don't even need to you know, say anything. You just kind of give that look, and it's enough to know I like it or I don't like it, etc. This is the nature of relationship, and it grows and deepens over time, provided that you don't fracture the relationship by violating the norms and standards of the relationship. If you do that, your relationship will freeze and lock up. If you continue doing it, it will break down and fail. This is at the root of a lot of divorce. And it's also at the root of a lot of failure in our spiritual lives. And so it's important that we recognize the standards of what makes a relationship work. And one of the things that's interesting about relationships is that if you are faithful in them, what you learn in this season builds on what you learned in that season, which builds on what you learned on that, in that season. So there's a continuity, there's an unfolding, if you want to say it, a continuous flow 
of revelation. And so our understanding of God himself grows over time, but it always grows consistent with his own revelation of himself. Future revelations will update and clarify what we already know, but they will never contradict what he has already revealed of himself. That's a super important concept. It's not one we're talking about very much, and that's why we have very strange things going on doctrinally in the body of Christ. For example, let's reopen the canon and put first Enoch in there, just to pick something that's one of my pet peeves. And so... Um, they don't contradict what he has already revealed of himself for this reason. He says in Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, change not. So he is who he is. Well, all of that is for our benefit because we can build on what we have known and we can go deeper with him. And we can even draw on what our mothers and our fathers or our you know, grandfathers and grandmothers knew. Um, and so we, with this, we can establish a family lineage of faith, a dynasty of faith. I've been in parts of the country, that's probably true here too, uh, where there are people who can say, yeah, we trace our lineage of faith back to the Mayflower uh, passengers. Now, that's not everywhere, of course, but you know, that's like a 200-year lineage of faith coming to establish a city on a hill. And while the current understanding of the faith may be a little different for the for the current people than it might have been for the pilgrims, it wouldn't be significantly different. And it would really be, the changes would be cosmetic based on the current cultural communication styles and so forth. Well, okay, so there's this idea of revelation. And the very first time in the Bible, we're not going to go to this passage, but I'll just, I'll cite it. The very first time in the Bible that the Lord reveals himself is to um, Abraham, who at that time was known as Abram. And when he reveals himself to Avram, the revelation that he gives him is, my name is God Almighty. That's how we say it in English. Avram didn't have much information, but he knew this, that when God spoke to him, he said, my name in Hebrew is El Shaddai. Now, El, in particular, is not a, is a, is not a noteworthy name. There were many Ales in the ancient Near East, they were all known as God. The question is, which God? So you put something on the tag end of that to understand who he was. And so when God revealed himself, there was this ale and that ale and the other ale, and then there's this one who called himself El Shaddai, God Almighty. And so Avram was called to walk before this El Shaddai, uh, to walk before him and be upright. The Hebrew word is tamim, to be holy to be set apart, and not only that, to be willing to engage in certain behaviors and norms of behavior that, at least for the context, for the ancient Near Eastern times in which he lived, they were unusual. Holy means separated unto him, even if it makes it look as though we are out of step with modernity. That's a really important concept, too. I just pause there to let it sink in. And so God called Avram and he, he revealed himself, I am all powerful. And so there could be implied in that almost, <laughs> it reminds me of the song by Bob Dylan, um, Highway 61, some of you might know it. God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, you must be putting me on. God said, no, Abe say what? God say, you can do what you want, Abe, but the next time you see me coming, you better run. Abe said, where do you want this killing done? God said, down on Highway 61. Well, that's how Bob Dylan's, that's kind of his modern take on the sacrifice of Isaac. Now, in the end, of course, Isaac doesn't die. But, but it shows you that when we follow the Lord, he calls us to live separate, to live different. And we shouldn't let that stumble us that we might actually not fully conform to the world around us. And so it wasn't enough in Avram's case just to know about God. God expected that a particular lifestyle, a particular set of behaviors would flow out of following him and taking that name. That's a really important concept and it applies directly to where we're going with this message. Then the Lord begins to reveal himself and it's of course some many centuries later 
The revelation to Avram comes 1850 BC. And now we're looking at the children of Egypt. And God had told Avram, later Abraham, or Ibrahim, he had said to him, I'm going to give all this to you, uh, except, you know, I'm not actually going to give it to you personally. It's going to your children and your descendants. Uh, and they're going to go down to Egypt for 400 years. And I can imagine Abraham saying, well, thanks for that. You know, some inheritance, right? But remember that in those times, it was clearly understood that one of the ways we live on is through our children and grandchildren. We've lost that understanding in modern American society as well. It's one of the reasons family has been diminished. It's part of why we kill our children. There's a lot of things that are wrapped up in that failed understanding. But anyway, God says, I'm going to give it to your children. And he says, I will bring them up out of the land of Egypt where they will be for 400 years. And just prior to that time... They've been in captivity for four centuries. Just stop and think about that for a second. This is the year 2022. The pilgrims that I mentioned a few minutes ago, they crossed the ocean in the year 1620 and set foot at Plymouth Rock in mid-November. So as it works out, it's 402 years ago that that happened. So the amount of time that the children of Egypt are down in Egypt, the children of Israel are down in Egypt, is essentially the entire history of settlement in America. Think of all the change that's happened in this country. Think of the technological evolution. Think of the development of language. Think of our religious sensibilities. I mean, a lot has changed in four centuries. And with that, you would understand that although the people who went down to Egypt were devout followers of this one called El Shaddai, while they're down there, their sensibilities become corrupted. They're living among Egyptians. They're eating Egyptian food. They see Egyptian gods everywhere. We know from a couple of key passages in the Exodus account that when they come up out of Egypt, even though El Shaddai is rescuing them, he's now got another name, but we'll get back to that. Even though that's the case, they're carrying idols. And they're supposed to be the people of God. And in fact, they are the people of God because that's why he's rescuing them. But they're mixed. They aren't wholly following the Lord as they should be. They are no longer living tamim, as God had said in his covenant, in his testament with them, that they should be separate and consecrated unto him. I think one of the reasons Moses ends up getting picked for the job is he's probably one of the very few people among the Israelites who is still living any dimension of true tamim living. Just a thought. I'm not talking about salvation here. I'm talking about being given the choice jobs in the kingdom. Some people disqualify themselves from all that God would do with them because of their poor choices, because they think they have a better idea. Just letting that settle for a moment. So, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is one day tending sheep. Now, Moses is not a perfect person. He's had this exchange with an Egyptian taskmaster who is in the process of beating one of the Hebrew slaves. Moses has been raised in Pharaoh's court. You might remember the story. He was put into a basket made of rushes and made to float on the River Nile by his mother who would not allow him to be killed. She hid him from those who had been sent to kill all the babies. And, uh, as it works out, providentially, what do you know? Pharaoh's daughter finds him and says, hey, this must be one of the Hebrew children. I'll adopt him as my own and I'll raise him. And so Moses is providentially raised as an Egyptian prince. He's never going to be the heir to the throne, but he speaks Egyptian. He knows Egyptian customs. He knows Egyptian culture. And he stays in that role until about age 40 when he sees one of his countrymen. Somehow he's figured out, I'm actually a Hebrew, not an Egyptian. He sees them being uh, that guy being beaten and so he kills this taskmaster and somehow word gets out and so he has to flee and he spends 40 more years and he's tending sheep in the desert you know sometimes we create our own wilderness experience and it often comes because of our passions Moses's case it was anger not sex or something else but nevertheless he's in the desert and he's in the wilderness and so in the midst of that the calling comes. 
God can even use our hardships. And so when the Lord begins revealing himself to the children of Israel in Egypt, he first appears to Moses. Now Moses is tending sheep, and as he's moving through the desert with these sheep, he looks over and he sees a bush, and it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. Now we tend to view this you know, in the West as, wow, what a miracle. It's actually, it's unusual, but it's not that miraculous. I used to do a lot of quail hunting in the deserts of California, east of Los Angeles. And from time to time, it gets hot enough out there that those bushes out there, and it would be similar in, in the Sinai Peninsula, they have um, creosote or other kinds of volatile resins as their sap. You see this, for example, in pine trees, not that you find pine trees in a desert. You see it in eucalyptus trees as well, not that you have eucalyptus trees in a desert. But a lot of these desert bushes, they have that same kind of resin and sap. And if it gets hot enough and it's dry enough, those bushes will go off spontaneously and burn. I've, I've seen it on four or five occasions. But again, I haven't seen it like 400 times. So it's not that common. But if you're a guy who's living as a shepherd and you've been out there for 30 or 40 years tending sheep, you might have seen this a time or two. Sometimes there'll be a dry lightning strike and it'll set a bush on fire. That's another way that they, they go up. So Moses sees this bush and he could have kind of ignored it but he, he, something about it, you know, he looks and he, he shows some level of interest in drawing to it. And so he moves toward it. And it says that as he gets near, then God speaks to him. God has his attention. Take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. And so Moses takes off his shoes. And, uh, and it's only then that he sees the angel of the Lord in the bush. Now, the angel of the Lord is, is Jesus. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, and so he sees the similitude and the form of this man in the fire. And in that, God speaks to him and he says, Haya asher haya. I am who I am. Now, the only thing Moses knows about God up until this moment is he's El Shaddai. He's powerful. But now he understands that he is self-sufficient. And it comes round numbers, about 500 years after the revelation that Abraham had received. You might say, man, that's a long time. I mean, in the, in the scheme of things, it's not that long, but it's certainly long enough. And it tells you that God sometimes takes his time in speaking to us and clarifying things. But as I said last night, there comes a new revelation and with it a new anointing. And so this is really Moses' initiatory moment into a new revelation of God and a new anointing that will be sufficient to break the back of Egypt such that the Jews get out of their slavery. And so it's a limited revelation of just one single aspect of God's nature. But when he says, I am, he means, I exist, I am alive, and I am present and as I already said, I am self-sufficient and therefore I am sovereign. I answer to no one. I do what I want. And I, in my own choosing, have decided to come and rescue the Jewish people because I am a covenant-keeping God. I made a promise to Abraham and I intend to keep it. They're getting out of jail. That's what's going on. Now that's a profound revelation. It tells us something about the character and nature of God that many of us would be well, unfamiliar with. And so, um, and so the story unfolds, and it's actually not long after the Haya Asher Haya revelation, I am who I am, that the third revelation of God comes. And in that third revelation, they had known him as El, but they had never known him as the... the it's a word that the Jewish people will not utter, Christians are pretty cavalier with it. I increasingly don't want to say it out of respect for our Jewish roots of the Christian religion. Um, but the word is spelled Y-H-W-H. -H. When the Jews see that, when they're reading the Bible in Hebrew, they don't say that word. They will not utter it aloud. They substitute the word Hashem, which means the name, that name, that special name. God reveals himself by that one special name. In English Bibles of another generation, we tended to substitute the vowels for the word Lord together with those consonants, and we get the word Jehovah out of it. 
that's where that name comes from, Jehovah. But that's actually not his name. It's a, it's a blended name that uses the tetragrammaton, those four letters, uh, with the vowels for the word Lord. But anyway, um, he reveals himself as that one. We'll say Hashem or we'll say Jehovah rather than using the name itself. But he reveals himself there. And when he does, he has something that he wants to say to Moses. And he's going to expand on it in chapter 34. It doesn't happen quite here fully. But this name means, among other things, that he is merciful, Rahum. He is gracious, Hanum, and he is slow to anger and long-suffering. He is merciful. He is Arek in Hebrew. And so now we understand that this God is all-powerful. We understand that this God is self-sufficient. That could sound very cold and sterile. That could sound very distant. That could sound like somebody we can't really relate to. But actually we can because he is merciful, because he is gracious, because he is compassionate. And it actually says that the Lord looked down and he saw the suffering and affliction of the people of Israel in their bondage and he knew. This isn't just knowledge. This is he himself was sharing in the affliction that they felt as they were being pressed upon, beaten, and abused by Egyptian taskmasters. And so now we have a completely unexpected understanding of who this God is. It's not contradictory to Revelation 1 or 2, but again, what we learn here builds on what we've learned here. And so this becomes the third revelation of God, and now we come to our passage. This is only the fourth revelation of God that he has given of himself in the whole of the Bible up to that point. And so, in this revelation, we see it in Exodus 15, 26. He says, I am the Lord, your healer. Well, that's a pretty interesting thing to say when you understand that this is the all-powerful one, when you understand that this is the all-sufficient one, and when you understand that he feels mercy and compassion and tenderness toward us, that means that that one who has unlimited capability actually bends it in our direction for our benefit and our help. That is a revelation. That is a revelation. I don't want you to think about all the yeah buts, the healing that didn't occur this time, or the fact that I still have this condition or whatever. Never mind the yeah buts. Let's just start with what is. Let's start with what God says of himself. And so that's who he is. He's the all-powerful, self-existed one, and he decides to pick a name for himself, self-given, that I am your healer. And that means that when he sees our weaknesses or our sicknesses or our sufferings or our bondage and our captivity, he responds with compassion, grace, and mercy, not with accusation. This is the God who liberates this is the freeing one. And so it's at this point that his own self-revelation becomes very personal because it tells us that healing flows from the very person of God, indeed from his very nature. And so with that, we call him Jehovah Rapha. And that's Rapha means healer. It's a self-given name. He says, I want you to know him this way, or I want you to know me this way. And so the question that we can turn from this is, do you know him this way? I made the comment on the first night about how I believe the Lord would establish a covenant of well-being, of wholeness and health with us. And, you know, this morning my friend Pat, who's, you know, been here with me through the weekend, we're in the same uh, doctoral program together, and she was talking about at her advanced age, which is higher than mine, she has no health issues. She takes no medicines. And I, I don't either. My doctor and I get into it because he's a Muslim. And every time I go in to see him, he always forgets because he has like 2,000 patients that he you know, sees because um, he's part of a health care system. 
but every time I go in to see him, he looks at my chart and he goes, how is it that you are your age and you're not taking all the medications of everybody else? Most of my patients that are your age have five or six medications. You don't have any. Why are you not taking medicine? I say, well, I serve one called the Lord my healer, and I believe him to be that, and so he sustains my health. And he says, I don't want to talk about this. I serve Allah. And I'm like, right. How's Allah working out for you? Right? So this is the nature of our evangelistic engagement at this time. He's going to get saved. I know it's coming. All right. So that's how God reveals himself. Now let's unpack that a little bit. How did they get to this place? How did they get to where God says, I am the Lord, your healer. This is how I want you to know me. This is how I want you to relate to me. Well, it wasn't just linear. Let me just lay it on you. In fact, God puts them through what I call the spiritual extrusion process. Does anybody know what extrusion is? It's a process whereby we shape metal with a lot of force. And they, you, know, you might have a big chunk of whatever it is. And when you extrude it, it gets pushed maybe through a little hole or some thing that makes it like a thin filament or something, a piece of tape or something like that. But there's tremendous force and pressure, and so the metal is being shaped and pushed, and I'm sure the metal doesn't feel good. I mean, we don't know anything about the emotions and feelings of metal, uh, since it is inanimate, but, but you, get the, you get what the word picture is. And so it says here, as they're coming out of Egypt, God has delivered them. They've seen ten miracles that have laid Egypt low, that they would be freed. And then the Red Sea parts before them, and they are brought out of all that. This is all part of their history, and yet they've learned essentially nothing. God has done eleven miracles, ten to the nation of Egypt itself, and then one to part the Red Sea, and these Jews have learned essentially nothing. Now, before you get too quick to jump on the Jews for their unbelief and hardness of heart, point your finger at yourself, because this isn't a Jewish problem. It is a human problem. This is how we live. This is what we do all the time. And so they've come out, and you know, when the Lord sent Moses to Pharaoh, he said, tell him to let my people go, that they may go three days into the wilderness and worship me. That sounds pretty cool. Oh man, we're going on a camping trip with God. We're going to have this great worship service in the desert. But it is a wilderness. And a wilderness is where God will try you and test you. And so they've crossed out of Egypt. The plagues are now behind them. The Red Sea has parted. And it says, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. This is to be the place where they learn to worship, and they don't really know how to worship. And part of it is because they don't actually know him by name. And so God is creating a divine vortex, a crux. He is going to extrude them in order that they would come to know him as he wanted to be known in this fourth great revelation of his name. And so here they are in the wilderness, and it's interesting that they come to this place called Shur. That wouldn't necessarily mean much to most of us here, but if you look at the word Shur in Hebrew, it means the wall. They hit the wall. What are you going to do? You've got 600,000 men. There's probably a comparable number of women because normally in untampered with populations of people, men and women are born approximately equal, equal. And then you've got as many children as 1.2 million adults can produce. But this is a time where there's no birth control. And so the families tend to be larger. You can assume what you want to for the number of children, but based on that, we can easily get to a crowd of four, five, six million people they've hit the wall you know why because they're three days out of the red sea and they've run out of water and they're thirsty and god has set this up that they would be tried now god never tests excuse me tempts anyone he never tempts anyone the bible says that but he will test you 
Oh, yes, he will. And we have lost that understanding in the modern period, again, largely as a result of the inaccuracies of the hyper-grace message. And so they come to this place in the wilderness, sure, and it's called Marah. Now, Marah is a word in Hebrew that means bitter. You may remember from the book of Ruth when Naomi loses her two sons. Her husband has died already, and now she doesn't have any men left in her life. She only has these two daughters-in-law from the marriages that have now vanished because the sons have died. And Naomi says, no longer call me Naomi, call me Marah, for my life is bitter. Were these Jews bitter? Well, you tell me, 400 years in slavery. Look at what we're dealing with in our country if you want to have a sense of just how long-lasting that bitterness can be in your mouth as you think about all that you've been through, all the oppression, all the asymmetry of grace and power, and on and on and on. This isn't meant to be a social justice sermon, but I I call it to your remembrance so you can at least identify a bit with what they're dealing with. And so they've come to Marah, because they still had bitterness of soul from their time in Egypt. The scripture even says this in Exodus 12.8, but again, I'm not going there because I'm just trying to keep this to a manageable length for Sunday morning. And so um, the people begin to grumble, as you will do. What is grumbling? It's complaining. It's a natural response uh, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're a grumbling kind of person, if you're prone to complaining, if you're prone to blaming God... You are in a marah moment. And by the way, with trials, you will stay in them until you pass. So the fastest way out of that trial is to begin to praise and worship, which is what they were supposed to be doing three days in the wilderness. God literally let them go into the trial in order that they could come out of it if they would learn the lesson. But oftentimes we resist those lessons and we stay stuck and then we say, how come God's not answering my prayer? And the answer is, hello, McFly. Just, I'm just saying, this is the way it rolls. So, <laughs> this is displeasing to God. And it was, as it says, their first testing. It's not the last. There's more to come. But it's their first testing because God wanted to deal with the totality of who they were inside and out. There are many people who are freed from whatever their slavery is, in this case it is physical, literal slavery, but in their minds they're still slaves. They still have fallen thinking God's trying to reform them on the inside as well as dealing with their outside freedom. I think sometimes we get too focused on the immediate manifestation of whatever that outside thing is and we don't realize God has a bigger purpose called our sanctification. That's what's going on here. And so... They had been called to be a holy people. Let's not forget that word, tamim. They were called to be a nation of priests unto the Lord. And so all of this was a necessary part of their maturation as well as their healing. And what was the nature of the test? Well, it's actually quite interesting. If we go back to verse 26, it says here, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. And this is what he said, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Now this implies a prophetic living voice, but also not just the prophecy side, you will do what is right in his eyes, walk according to righteousness. There's the tamim part. And if you will give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, these last two imply the written word, which, by the way, won't be given until Exodus 20. So God's looking forward in anticipation. He says, I am going to show you my ways, and if you will walk in them, I will do something for you that you would never believe. But I haven't even told you what it is yet. Are you willing to take me at my word? Are you willing to trust me enough that whatever it is I put down in writing, that you will follow that? That's what's going on with this language of the commandments and statutes. He says, if you will do these four things, I will allow none of the diseases that came upon the Egyptians to come upon you. You will walk in divine health, for I am Jehovah Rapha, your healer. But you know what that implies. 
is he wants to enter into a covenant with them, and he's going to ask them to ratify that covenant in a few chapters. Hasn't happened here yet. But I'm asking you to join yourselves to the covenant with me, and then once you do it, you are accountable for that covenant. And if you break the covenant, I won't break it because I'm holy and I don't change. I will be faithful to my own word. But you are going to be tested in this because you people are unstable. You say you'll do one thing, but then you don't do another. You go after a commitment, and you might walk it out for a month or a year or even five, but then you fall off the wagon, and you don't do that, and then the whole thing falls apart, and the whole thing that I'm trying to teach you is to stay with me for a lifetime, to be consistent. And so would they listen to his commandments, his basic laws, the Ten Commandments? Would they listen to his statutes, These would be the other things that he tells them about, how to live, how to order their life. If you'll do that, I will do my part. But note that all of this is a conditional promise. There's not an automatic guarantee that just because you say, yeah, man, I follow Jehovah, so I I can live in divine health. No, you you can have divine health if you truly follow Jehovah, not just talk about it. Isaiah had a language for this, and Jesus, by the way, quotes Isaiah in his own ministry, comes out of Isaiah 29, and he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And the way you know their hearts are far from him is they don't live the way he wants them to live. So what is this meaning? Well, they're in the wilderness, and they're going to have some more things to go through, and by the way, they end up spending way more time in the wilderness than they're supposed to, And by the way, they're not always as healthy as they should have been. Why? Because oftentimes we define the boundaries of our own wilderness by our disobedience, by our choice to do things that were ultimately contrary to what God had revealed. This is rampant in the church today. It is one of the key reasons that people do not get healed because they are covenant breakers. I'm not trying to be a legalist. I'm just saying we got to get back to some basic stuff here. And the Lord said that's the precondition. Let me just give you one simple example. I know it's Sunday morning and I can't go too long with this. This could be its own sermon, but I'll just say this. Particularly in the last couple of years, I have become increasingly sensitized to the commandment against adultery. And there are many reasons for it. One of them is that when people commit adultery, typically marriages fall apart. But in America, we think adultery is only I violated my vows to my spouse. But in fact, adultery has a much wider meaning in terms of the way Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew culture understood immorality. Adultery isn't just that you violated your vows to your spouse. It might have happened before you ever met your spouse. We call it fornication, but actually fornication, to sleep with someone who isn't your married partner when you are yourself still unmarried, this gets subsumed under the concept of adultery because it is also immoral. And if you think I'm being too narrow and rigid in this, I will remind you of none other than Joseph, the father of Jesus. He was engaged to Mary, and when she was found to be child, the Gospels tell us he resolved in his heart to put her away, to divorce her, but he wanted to do it privately, quietly, because he didn't want to embarrass her, but he knew she had to have been unfaithful because he hadn't slept with her. It says he was a righteous man. So part of righteousness is to keep your sexuality in in the marriage bed, and he's saying there's only one way that she could have gotten pregnant. She's been unfaithful, so I'm going to divorce her before I ever marry her. And in the way they worked marriage in their culture, that's what it meant. He's going to break that engagement. And the only reason he doesn't do it is because an angel of the Lord comes to him and says, this with this that's in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. So he takes the biggest gamble of his entire life, right? Because he's going to be the laughing stock of the town. He's never going to live this down. Oh, yeah, an angel told me it's okay. And they're all like, right, Joe. Yeah, we know what was going on. Sure, great story. But, but the scripture interprets the scripture. And so we see in that that in their minds, fornication was to commit adultery. And I mentioned already that once you're in a marriage, you can blow it up by committing adultery. So there's multiple dimensions and directions this thing can run. And when we think about that, 
what we, what we see clearly is that in our society today, we have sown the seeds of our own destruction because of the sexual revolution, which got kicked off. I usually pick 1967 as the year because that was the summer of love. When you come to San Francisco, be sure to wear the flowers in your hair. And when you come to Woodstock, I have a friend who was a pastor. She's retired now. She got pregnant with her first child when she went to Woodstock for that rock festival in Woodstock, New York, on the farm. She met some guy. She thought he was cute. She literally just lifted up her dress and laid down on the grass, and they went for it because this is what you did in that free love culture. And she ended up getting pregnant. There was no abortion yet. By the way, Roe v. Wade came in 1973. It was the judicial solution to the immorality that we unleashed in the summer of love six years before. But the spiritual implications of that settling on for a moment. But anyway, so she gets pregnant, has this child, later gets saved, etc., but it's not, an, it's not a good beginning to the life of that particular child. And I mention all of it because what I've seen over and over again, specifically as it turn, comes to healing, is that these days, I don't know what it is, but the Lord's got his finger on it. Over and over again, we are finding people who have skin diseases, digestive disorders, sometimes um, malformation of their skeleton or other things and all of this arose from the immorality the adultery that they committed before they were even married because they were adulterating against the spouse they would one day have this is real we could go right down the list of the ten commandments and talk about each and every one of them and the dangers associated with violating these things and it is to our good that we honor these things because God loves us. He's not trying to be a killjoy. He's simply trying to get us to live the way he would have us to live in order that he can bless us. So you can have a choice. You can live under blessing or you can live in hardship. You choose. That's the nature of what's going on in this entire exchange. And so again, what was the nature of the test? It says God tested them. And the test was, would they listen to the voice of God? Would they follow their own ideas instead, one or the other? Would they act on what the voice of God spoke, doing what was right in his eyes? Or would they live out this proverb, which was written later, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You choose. Would they listen to his commandments, the basic laws, or the statutes, the amendments, elaborations, codicils? But the promise was simple. If you will pay attention, if you will do this, I will be the Lord your healer. Well, you've got two people in this room who can give that testimony. Me and my friend Pat. There might be some others of you, but I didn't talk with you about it. So. And then there's others of you where your bodies aren't working, where your diseases aren't going away. And it may well be because of things that you did long ago, not even realizing what you'd gotten yourself into. And it's time to come clean with the Lord. This is the beauty of the Christian faith. There is forgiveness. This can get fixed. You can hit the reset button. That's why we call it being born again. Maybe we should call it the great reset. That would preach these days. All right, so let's, let's finish this up. So they, they move on from Marah, from the place of bitterness where God has laid this in front of them. And apparently they didn't just physically move on. They emotionally and internally moved on from Marah. And so then they come to this place called Elim. And the very thing they needed, which was water, they find that there are, what? Twelve springs of water. How many tribes of Israel? One particular spring for every single tribe God can make a way in the wilderness and not only that there's 70 palm trees you know why that one's important well for one thing you get dates which are nutritious and tasty but because every one of those 70 elders who were leading Israel with Moses or who would lead Israel with Moses we see that account in numbers a little bit later on everyone gets his own tree to sit under God wants to give you shade in the heat as well as water to drink. He really is that good. And you can access these things, but again, we've got to be more thorough. We've got to pay, as the New Testament says, the New Testament says, <clears throat> we need to pay closer attention to that which we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And suddenly we find we're out of compliance and all of these promises aren't working. 
It's not that God is trying to get us in a gotcha. It's rather that he wants us to become faithful and consistent in our loyalties to him. And so he's trying to create an environment where we can learn and voluntarily and joyfully choose him. Well, let's, let's turn the clock way forward now <clears throat> from the Exodus. Approximately 1,400 years later, Jesus is born. And he was named Jesus, Matthew tells us, because he would save his people from their sins. Now, when we hear that because of the, the, the lens that we carry as Protestant Christians in America at this time and date, we think you get forgiven for all the bad things you were done. Fair enough. But the Greek word is sozo. He will sozo his people from their sins. And that means they're not only going to get forgiven, they're going to get healed. They're going to go back to the covenant of divine healing. They're going to get delivered. So their evil spirits get driven out. We see that in the ministry of Jesus. They're going to have multiple points of breakthrough because they're coming back to a place where they're living under the provision of the Lord in a comprehensive environment called shalom, God's peace. It's a down payment of the future that we will have in heaven, but we get to experience it now on the earth. This is the kingdom message all over again. And so with that, when Jesus begins his ministry of healing and deliverance and restoration and so forth, what he's doing is he's really giving a sign. Watch this. Exodus 15, 26 is still in effect. We have a new and better covenant, but that doesn't mean it's going to be less than the old one. It means it's an upgrade beyond that. How about that one? And so it remains a sign today, a sign that our Father wants to bring his people back into a fuller revelation of who he is and what his intentions toward us are. Well, in closing, I just want to tell you a very quick story. I mentioned last night being in Indonesia on this island where we had in one night literally the whole island came to faith. And I said it started with 10 deaf people who got healed, but I didn't break that story down. The way it unfolded was we had the word for 10 deaf people. They all came up. Initially, only six were healed, which is still not a bad hit rate. But only six got healed. And, of course, if you were to call 10 deaf people to the front of the room in a typical American church, all the oxygen would leave the room because everyone would be like, this is never going to work. God's going to be embarrassed. So six got healed, and then we stopped, and we went down the road of the other four, and we said to them, are you angry with somebody? This is kind of a looser use of the word bitter. We weren't even sure how well it would translate, translate excuse me, into the Indonesian language. So we kind of made the language a little bit sloppier. But we asked them, are you upset? Are you angry? Do you have a, a case against somebody? And every one of those four said, yes, I do. And so with that, we asked them if they'd be willing to forgive that person, to stop being angry. Yes, I will. And so we prayed with them, and then four out of four got healed of the remainder. These waters of Marah are a big deal. These waters of Marah are a big deal. And so also is the need to move beyond Marah into the place of Elim, where we can find the blessing of the Lord. And once we're there, unless the cloud moves and tells us to move on, we better stay parked right by those springs. Now, I know we've already had a healing time, um, you know, at the front end of the service, and presumably many were already healed, but we're just going to do another lap, call it the victory lap. And if you are here today and you've had issues in your life that have not been resolved, before you come up, take a moment and just say, who do I need to forgive? Let me give you an example of how powerful this is. We've seen breakthrough in skin conditions in the last three years as I've been meditating on this matter of keeping the statutes and covenants um, with teenagers, that their parents bring them, and they're all broken out with acne. And everybody knows this is kind of part of the teenage hormone cycle and oils in the face, and you know it's part of growing up, but eventually goes away, right? Well, what else happens in the teenage years? Oftentimes there's a kind of rebellion and a defiance of mom and dad. And does anyone know one of the commandments? Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. 
And so what we've seen over and over again, I'm just giving this as an illustration of it. Over and over again, these parents will bring their kids and I'll say, come here with me and I'll take them over to the side so mom and dad aren't in earshot. They can see what we're doing so they know there's no funny business. But I'll just say, are are you upset with your mom and dad? Are you defiant? Do you kind of mouth off? Yeah. You know, the Bible says that you're supposed to honor your father and mother. Do you think you might be dishonoring them? I suppose so. Do you want to look? Can we set that right and see what the Lord will do with that? Okay. How do I do that? Well, just pray with me. Let's confess this. Let's go back and give mom and dad a hug. Tell them we love them. Sorry, we've been disrespectful. We have seen many, I mean a lot of cases of really bad acne. Sometimes it'll clear up right in front of our eyes. I mean, literally, in a matter of a couple of minutes, it just seems to go away. Other times, maybe if I'm in that church for three or four days, by the end of the time there, it's gone. Or maybe afterward, I get a message from the pastor. Hey, remember praying for this person? Here's a picture, and their face is totally clear. All of these instructions of the Lord are for our good and our benefit. They may seem onerous at the time, but it's only because we have fallen thinking and we don't appreciate what he would do for us. The Lord wants to be your healer. He wants to renew the covenant of healing with you. And so I want you to think about where you might be angry or bitter or where you may have violated some of these things that we tend to dismiss or say, that's not a big deal, it's all under the blood. I confessed my sins when I got born again and it's all fine now. No, actually it's not. It's meant to be an ongoing walk, not just a one-time deal on the front end. That's like buying fire insurance in case the house burns down. Does that make sense? And if, if, you, if you get what I'm saying, stop for a moment or two. You don't need to take long. Deal with that with the Lord in your seats before you even come up here. Then when you come up, as you come to the prayer team, tell them, this was my issue, this is what I just confessed to the Lord, and then receive prayer, and I'll bet the majority of you are going to get healed. If you don't, it'll only be because there's yet another layer of something that we didn't quite get to in that simple exercise. But the Lord is your healer, he wants to be your healer, and he's going to heal many more of you this morning. Does that sound good? Okay, so while everybody is making their peace with the Lord and uh, having a moment realizing where they may have been out of compliance. By the way, if you don't know where to begin, flip your Bible a couple chapters forward to Exodus 20 and just read down the list of the Ten Commandments and see where you may have borne false witness against somebody or been involved in some other God or dishonored your father and mother, as in my most current example, or just down the list. Did you steal? Did you lie? Did you ever kill? I mean, there's a number of ways that these things could come into play, but just think about that. Do your thing with God. Come up, get prayer. The Spirit of the Lord is here, and healing will occur. Amen? All right. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you that the fourth revelation you gave, that you wanted us to know always and forever, amen, is that you are the Lord, our healer. And we ask you now that you would make good on your Word and that many would be healed here as they set things right with you. And so, Lord... We confess, we sometimes stray, sometimes out of ignorance, sometimes out of willfulness, but either way, we need your help. And so we say, we want to take you as our God. We acknowledge that you named yourself Jehovah Rapha. And with that, we say, can we access you as Jehovah Rapha through your son, who will save us from all of these kinds of sins? Holy Spirit, come and heal.